going to read, so y'all just hang with me. Uh, Pick up two verses uh, that we looked at previously. This is chapter 26, verse 39. It won't be up there on the screen, I don't think. Going a little farther, so this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus fell down with his face to the ground. He prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So that's what Jesus is doing in the the hours and the minutes immediately preceding his arrest. He's praying. If you remember, Peter's sleeping. Judas is betraying. That's the activity leading up to this scene. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you have come for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, we know it's Peter from one of the other Gospels, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that says it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Uh, One thing you may find interesting, if you compare what's going on in these last few hours of Jesus' life with Isaiah 53, you'll see a lot of parallels. When Jesus says, this scripture must be fulfilled, he's referring to Isaiah 53. That's called the suffering servant passage. It's this picture uh, that Isaiah gives of a servant who's, just worn out on behalf of his people. And Jesus is saying, that's me. And just like in Isaiah 53, it says, I'll be numbered with the transgressors. That's what's happening. That's why I needed to be arrested like I was a criminal versus you guys doing something in the middle of the day in the temple when that's where you saw me day in and day out. Verse 57, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. They did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and claimed, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? So the, this kind of mob takes Jesus to Caiaphas' house. And the, the Sanhedrin is like the Jewish Supreme Court. There's 70 men who sit on it. We don't know how many are there that night. I think 23 was a quorum. quorum so there's at least that many because they pass a judgment. And kind of the way things would happen is 
you'd bring in a witness and he would tell his story. Hey, this is what I heard Jesus say or do. Then they bring in another one and he would say something. And if their testimony conflicted, then you tossed it out as unreliable. According to the Old Testament, you need the testimony of two or three people in order to convict someone of, of death. And that's what they were looking for. They, they needed a capital crime that they could then translate into, um, in, in, into his death, Rome, uh, carrying out the execution. The Jews were not allowed to execute people. So even if they found something that they said is worthy of death, they needed something that Pilate, who is the Roman governor, would also say, yeah, that breaks our Roman laws as well, not just your Jewish laws. So that's, kind of, that's what they're going for. So they have all of this false testimony comes through. And finally, two guys say, he said he could, if we destroy the temple, he could build it again in three days. If you look at John 2, he says something really similar to that. He says, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. And he's talking about his body, but he did say something very similar. So the high priest grabs that and says, why don't you respond? He hasn't said anything the whole time. Again, if you look back at Isaiah 53, I think it's verse 7, says that like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he won't, he won't say a word. He'll be quiet. And that's what's going on here. He never defends himself. If you've ever been in a situation where somebody is saying things about you that aren't true, false accusations, that it's very difficult to not stand up for yourself. And he, he doesn't do it. He doesn't say anything. If you've got a red letter Bible, there's not a whole lot of red in the trials. This one or the next one that we'll look at. He doesn't say anything. So finally, Caiaphas fed up says, are you the Christ or the Messiah? Are you the son of the living God? And what Jesus says is you said it. That's the word there. It's as you say. Those are your words is what Jesus says. And then he defines what he means by Messiah. And he quotes two passages, one from Psalm 110 where David is talking. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, the name of God, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then he quotes from Daniel 7, 13 and 14 where Daniel has a vision, and he says, I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds. And Jesus says, that's the kind of Messiah I'm going to be. And that sets them off. Because they were, it would not have been blasphemy for him to say, I'm the Messiah. What the, the Jews were looking for one. Their picture of the Messiah was kind of like Captain America, Captain Israel. So he's a man, but he's like a man to the nth degree. He's the, he's the best man. But he's not superhuman he's not divine he's just a he's just the he's a man at the height of his capacity and what Jesus is saying I'm not a messiah like that I'm actually a whole lot like God I actually am him and he takes on these divine attributes he said I'm going to be the one sitting at God's right hand I'm actually going to be coming back in the clouds which for a Jew that's what God does God comes back on clouds even the messiah doesn't get to do that so for him to say that he's claiming divinity, which was blasphemy. Like, they're right. That's bla Unless it's true, it's blasphemy. And so when you hear blasphemy, you're supposed to tear your clothes, and that's what the high priest does, and says, we don't need any more witnesses. We can hang him based on what he said. Everybody agrees. And so then we look down in chapter 27. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people come to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. So it's against the law for the Sanhedrin to meet at night. So they, they meet in the morning to legitimize what they just did at night. And they also have to massage the charges a little bit. They can't, Pilate doesn't care if Jesus is, doesn't care about blasphemy. That means nothing to him. So they've got to figure out some way that they can shift what Jesus has said 
in such a way that Pilate will care. And this is what Luke says, they say. We found this man subverting our nation, so that has kind of political undertones. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be the Christ, a king. So what they're doing is they're taking what Jesus has said, they're making it political so they can make him an enemy of Caesar, and that way Pilate will say, absolutely, he's committed treason, let's, let's crucify him for that. He doesn't care about blasphemy, he does care about treason. It's ironic that the Jews say Jesus is committing blasphemy because he says he's a spiritual Messiah and not a political one. But then what they charge him with before Pilate is being a political Messiah and not a spiritual one. They get it both ways. And so they take him before, so then they, they all decide that, so they bring him before Pilate. This is chapter, or excuse me, verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, that's Pilate, and the governor says, are you the king of the Jews? So he's asking a political question here. Are you the king of the Jews? Again, the exact same answer that Jesus gave to Caiaphas. Yes, it is as you say, or those are your words, or you said it. Jesus replies, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. There's that idea again, keeping his mouth shut. Then Pilate says, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on his head, and they put a staff in his right hand, knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff, and struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, they took off his robe, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. So this trial, Pilate's judge and jury, he gets to decide. And once he makes a decision, the verdict is enacted immediately. That's why you see Jesus immediately being crucified. As soon as Pilate says guilty, then the punishment is carried out. Now Pilate knows that he, Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. It says he, he knew it was out of envy that the Jews brought Jesus to him, that the chief priest did. His wife says, stay away from this guy, he's innocent. And rather than kind of being a stand-up guy, being a leader and saying he's innocent, he caves in. He's, he looks for a workaround first. So he says, we've got this tradition where we let a prisoner go. His assumption is because Jesus is popular with the crowds, when he gives them the opportunity to let Jesus go, that they'll say, we'll, ta- we'll take him. Interesting. There's a strong tradition that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. And Barabbas actually means son of the father. So on one hand, you've got Jesus, son of the father, with a lowercase f. And on the other, you have Jesus, son of the father, with a capital F. And what, what 
Pilate says is, which Jesus do you want me to let go? And they choose this guy, the guy who was a murderer, who was a part of a rebellion, instead of this guy who'd spent three years seemingly improving their lives, teaching the truth, healing, delivering, all of those things. And when you hear that, when I hear that, I go, how, how is this happening? This is Friday morning, Sunday, Palm Sunday. They're all saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So how, just five days later, are they already calling for his head? These are pilgrims. So these are very religious guys who've gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. And there's tons of them. So you have a little bit of the group dynamic kind of crowd thing going on. But also, these guys don't have any reason to question the chief priests and the religious leaders. Those are their leaders. Those are the spiritual authority in their life. They don't have any reason to question their motives. And so it says the chief priests and the leaders, religious leaders, stirred up the people. So they're going around saying, hey, you need to ask for Barabbas to be released, not Jesus. You don't do... And so just, they're, they're just being good Jews. They're doing what their leaders are telling them to do. And again, you also have some of those dynamics of being in a crowd of however many thousands of people. But I, I don't know that the crowd necessarily turned on him in terms of changing their opinion. I think they were just following the leader's direction, which is they didn't have any reason to question them. And they're so convinced that they're doing the right thing that they will take full responsibility. That's this whole thing of let his blood be on our head and on the heads of their children. They're saying, we know we're doing the right thing. And we're so confident we're doing the right thing. We'll take full responsibility for the consequences of that. And what you have from Pilate, it's him washing his hands saying, I don't want anything to do with that. And I want to step aside here for a second. Pilate is, he's avoiding his responsibility. He thinks by washing his hands that somehow it abdicates him or it, it absolves him from having to make a decision about who Jesus is. And that's just not true. Most important question anyone and every one of us will have to answer is, what Jesus asked Peter in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am, or more personally or more precisely, who am I to you? That's the question. Who am I to you? And we can wash our hands all we want, and it doesn't change the fact that that's the question that's put before every one of us. Here's a li- this is just a few. If you've got a little outline, there's a, there's a link on it, and it's to this website. It's a little subset of this Bible website, and it lists over 200 roles and titles of Jesus. It's a little King Jamesy, but if you can weave through that, you can get some good stuff there. I just pulled a few. And so the question is not just who is Jesus to you initially? Have you made a decision to follow him? Is he your savior? Has he forgiven you of your sins? But there's an ongoing issue here where I think what Jesus would say to us is who am I to you today? And these are just a, a handful. This is one slide worth. Again, there's over 200. Emmanuel, that's God with us. Do you live on Tuesday? Like Jesus is with you or not? Is that something that you're consciously aware of his presence? Do you recognize he said to you, I'll never leave you or forsake you? If not, he may be saying to you, hey, let's, let's figure this part out. You can't wash your hands of that and say, I don't, I'm not going to deal with that. He's inviting you in to be Emmanuel, upholder of all things. That's Hebrews 1, 3. And also in Colossians it says Jesus uh, holds all things together. It's a huge one for us. Kind of ties into that idea of peace at the bottom. You have a lot of stress, anxiety, and worry in your life. I would say you're probably not living in the reality that Jesus sustains or upholds all things because you're sustaining and upholding all things. You're trying to do that. You're jumping in and trying to make things happen and hold things together. And so he's probably inviting you to live into the reality 
that he sustains all things. And you may say, well, intellectually, I get it. That's not enough. It's not an academic exercise. The soldiers, they said the right thing, hail king of the Jews, but there was nothing in their heart that said he's the king. What was in their heart was mocking. We're not, we're not mocking him in our heart, but it's not enough to form the right words. It's not enough to be able to write a good paper, check the right box on a, on a Bible test. The question is, are you living in the reality that Jesus upholds all things? And again, I would look at your emotions. If there's not a lot of peace in your life, then most likely you're not. Shepherd, do you recognize that Jesus wants to guide you and lead you? That whole Psalm 23 thing, guide you into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Green pastures, quiet waters. Do you recognize and live in the fact that Jesus wants to lead you on a daily basis? Is that reality for you? The bread of life, that is he sustains you. Do you feed on him, so to speak? That he's a cornerstone, so he's the one my life is built on, and he's the capstone, the one that holds everything together. That he's a healer as well. And again, there's tons more. My encouragement to you if you're reading the Bible would be, in the New Testament especially, when you see a, 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 a title or a phrase that describes who Jesus is, pause and ask the question, is this reality for me? Not do I know this, true, this is true academically, but is this a reality for me? Am I living in, in, into this? If Jesus were to say, who am I to you? Could I say, well, you're all of these things to me. There's a lifetime of growth for us. It doesn't mean that you're, you're slow if you don't have it all. It's just, it's, there's a process for us, and Jesus is constantly calling us into new dimensions of who he is. And it's just a, the matter for us is being responsive and being aware of that. We can't do a pilot. You can wash your hands all day long, but it doesn't absolve you of the responsibility of having to make a decision on who he is to you. And if there's confusion for you on that, You'd say, I, I really don't know. That's wonderful that you can actually name the fact that there's confusion. And then I would say, well, let's figure it out. Let's begin to figure out who he is to you. If you look at that and say, I see you're a healer, but you've let me down these four times when it comes to healing, so I'm not sure. That's not reality for me. Well, let's, let's get into that and figure that out. If there's a gap between what the Bible says, who the Bible says Jesus is, and your experience of him, well, let's figure, out, let's figure that out. If this is true, then ultimately your experience should line up with that. And if it's not, wherever that gap is, that's where, that's where some things need to happen. Whether that's some healing or some forgiveness or some growth or some enlightenment, I don't know. But we can work with that gap. The worst thing you can do is ignore it and pretend it's not there. That's not helpful at all. You can't ignore a broken arm. And that's, kind of, that's what that winds up being. If there's this huge part of who Jesus is and you're saying, well, you're not that to me. You can't take just part of him. You all are in relationships, spouses, kids, friends, coworkers, whoever. You can't take just part. We would love to at times just take the good parts of people and to leave the rest. But you can't. You get all or you get nothing. And it's very similar with Jesus. He's all of these things. And we want to make sure that we're embracing all of them as much as we can. So uh, let me close with this. Have y'all heard the phrase, kicking against the goads? You ever heard that? Acts 26, Paul is given this, he's recounting his testimony, his conversion. And he says, I heard this voice from heaven say, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? A goad was a pointed stick that was used to get oxen or 
mules to go in the right direction. If they walked in the wrong direction, it hurt. And so it was used by farmers to get the, these animals to move in the direction that they wanted them to go. And what Paul was saying is, I wasn't doing that. I was kicking against the goads. And so God spoke to me and said, why are you doing that? You're not living in the way that I want you to live. You're persecuting Christians. You're trying to stamp out the gospel. That's not what I'm doing. I'm doing this, and you're walking this way. So let's turn around, and you can get in step with me. Jesus doesn't kick against the goads. If you think about, we read very, I just skimmed over what he experienced just physically. And if you think about that, that's a, that's, a lot to endure. And I wonder what my response would be in the midst of that. Would I assume, would I say, oh, Satan's attacking me, or God's upset with me, or I'm outside of the will of God? Would I ever say being betrayed and arrested and mocked and beaten and falsely accused? Absolutely, that's God's best for my life. But somehow, Jesus, in the midst of that, is very, he's accepting. I don't think he's resigned. I think he's accepted, hey, this is, this is what God has for me. This is just a few things in Matthew that we see, he knew what was coming. And that's a, big, that's a big thing, I think, for him that allows him to not kick against the goads. He knows exactly what's going to be happening to him. He knows he's going to suffer. He knows he's going to be killed. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows he's going to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he also knows that he's going to be resurrected. He knows that that stuff that he experiences is not the last word. There's revelation there for him. So going into this last week of his life, he already knows what's going to happen. So when he's arrested, he doesn't fight back. And when Peter tries to fight back on his behalf, he says, put your sword down. This has to happen. This is the way it's got to play out. I know I'm going to be betrayed, and I know I'm going to be arrested. When he's falsely accused, he knew that was going to happen. doesn't necessarily make it any easier to endure physically, but he knows, hey, this is part of the plan. When he's mocked, when he's beaten, all the way up through his crucifixion, all of those things he already knew beforehand. There's this level of revelation that I think allows him to accept the circumstances as God's will for his life versus kicking against the goads. And so one of the questions for us becomes very quickly, do you know what God is up to in your life? Yes or no? Do you know what God is up to in your life? If you don't know what God is up to, then it's very difficult to cooperate with what he's doing. God never overrides our will. He always is looking for us to partner with him and what he's doing. But if we don't know what direction we're going, it's hard to do that. If he's trying to get me to go out that door, but I'm trying to to go out this door, I'm not cooperating with him. And so I'm going to constantly be fighting the direction God is trying to take me. I'm kicking against the goads. I'm swimming upstream. It wears me out. And there's pain. Along the way, unnecessary. Jesus experienced pain, but it was, all, it was part of getting him where God wanted him to go. And so a question for all of us becomes very quickly, do you know what God is up to in your life? Do you have that level of revelation? No, I don't, I don't get that. Like, I don't have a bullet point list. And if you do, that's wonderful. I don't know that God gives that level of clarity to us anymore. Hey, here's exactly what's going to happen, so you'll know it. I think the reason Jesus has that level of clarity is for the disciples' sake, not for his own. So they would know that everything happened according to God's plan and according to God's will. But I don't think we often get that, but sometimes, but we can get a sense. Like you may have this sense, like even from that previous slide, you may feel like what God is pressing you towards is to say, I need you, I'm wanting you 
to recognize that I hold everything together, that I sustain all things. And I want you to begin to relate to me as a sustainer of all things. I want you to trust me with the details of your life. And so if you know that, then that can change the way you experience your circumstances. It can change the way you view what's going on in your life. You might not fight quite as much. You may recognize everything is swirling around me, but I know what God is trying to teach me to do is to trust him with the details. So I'm going to make a choice to do that. My natural inclination is to fix everything. But I'm going to trust him in this, and so I'm just going to take a nap instead of jumping in and trying to fix everything. I don't know what that may, how that may play for you, but having some level of revelation God, of what God is doing can change things for you. And that's the first thing Jesus had, I think, that allowed him to accept what was going on that kept him from kicking against the goads. And the second thing is the way he prayed. We looked at that. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So there's two things there with the prayer. There's two pieces. The first is Jesus said what he wanted. And it wasn't a formality. It says, according to Luke, that he was praying, uh, he was sweating blood. That's how intensely he was feeling this. He was deeply distressed. He was troubled. He prayed earnestly. There's a depth of emotion here. He's putting everything on the table that he wants. He's saying very clearly to his father, I don't want to do this. Did Jesus get what he wanted? No. God said no to Jesus. So I don't know how that makes you feel about your prayers. He said no to Jesus. If anybody was ever going to have a prayer answered based on their merit, it's him. And he doesn't. There is no other way around this. And I think for us, there's something there that says there's got to be a willingness to put our hearts on the table as well, to say, this is what I really want. You ever tried to buy a present for somebody who says, I don't care? I don't care what you give me. Give me anything. Okay. Every time. It's difficult. At some point, you've got to want something. Maybe you don't care where we go eat after church, but at some point, you care about something. And if you trust me, won't you tell me? At some point, can't you tell me what you want? I think that's kind of where Jesus is. There's, there's a deep enough trust with the Father that he's willing to say, this is what I want. I don't want to experience this. Yes, he ultimately submits, but the first part of the equation is saying, this is what's in my heart. Second Chronicles 7.14, there's an if then. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then, and pray, then I will heal them. It's a contingent prayer. There's a contingency there. God is tying his actions to ours. If you'll pray, then I'll act. There's some things God's going to do no matter what. This is one of those. Jesus could have prayed. He may have prayed for three hours. He could have prayed for three years. He could have sent the prayer chain around the Internet and had everybody in the world praying. He's still going to have to die. There's no other way around it. There's only one way for this, for God's will to be accomplished. There's only one way for our sins to be taken care of, and that's for Jesus to die. So it doesn't matter how much he prays, and it doesn't matter how much we pray about that on his behalf. That has to happen. So the comfort for you is knowing that you're not so persuasive that you're going to cause God to do something that he doesn't want to do. There's freedom. As charming as you are, you're not going to charm him into something he doesn't want to do. There's some things that are set, and there's some things that are contingent, and we don't know the difference. And so we need to be willing to share what's in our hearts with him. We need to be willing to say, if we want floors, then ask for floors. 
If you want a new house, then ask for the house. And maybe that's a contingent thing where because Emma Kate asked, she's, or they're going to get a house. Or maybe that's something that's already been determined and it doesn't matter. I don't know. that I don't know. And neither do you. And so the invitation to us is to pray with the freedom that says you're not going to talk him into anything he doesn't want to do. I think maybe it's religious baggage that we have from growing up where it, it feels selfish to say this is what I want. We're, it doesn't, it makes us, we get squishy to say this is actually what I want. That's the whole reason we do these birthday things is once a year I want to make you say this is what I want. This is what I want. It's not selfish. It's not selfish when your kids say, this is what I want. You get to decide if you want to give it to them. But don't you like the fact that they trust you enough to ask? That they feel comfortable enough with you to ask? And if it's something that, if, you don't, if it's not good for them, or if just you decided not to give it to them, that's fine. And the same thing is true in our relationship with the Lord. Is there enough, is there enough depth of trust there? Is there enough connection relationally for you to say, this is what I want? And to put it on the table. He's gonna, if he said no to Jesus, he's not going to have any problem saying no to you or to me. So I don't need to worry about that. What I need to worry about is how many things have I left on the table. Where he said, well, if, if, if David would ask, then I'd do this. But he didn't, so I won't. It's not living in regret. It's just recognizing there's this incredible partnership that God has invited us into and a huge piece of it is prayer prayer is not informing God of what's going on it's inviting him to get involved and there are places where he's saying I'm not going to get involved until you invite me in so that's the first piece is sharing your heart these are the desires that you have and the second is but it's your ultimately I'm going to do what you want me to do there's that submission part that's part of being a good kid part of being a good child is saying this is what I want that's part of the father child relationship and the second part is saying but I trust you you know better than me and God does he's smarter than us wiser than us he can see around the corner he's better than us in every way and so there's this sense which Jesus says listen I don't want to do this but if it's the best way if it's the only way if it's what you want then I'm in and so and we want to have that same we want to have both of those elements in our prayer life this part that says with passion and persistence this is what I want to see in these areas of my life and Ultimately, I yield to you. If the best thing, if I want to go left, and ultimately you tell me the best thing to do is to go right, then I'm going to go right, and I'm going to trust that it's the best thing for me. And we want both of those elements. What some of us do is we skip the first and go straight to the second. Well, I don't care. I don't care. Whatever you want, God, I don't care. Sometimes we do that because we don't want to be disappointed. If we never put our desires on the table, then we feel like, well, no matter what God does, it's okay. I'm not going to be disappointed if he doesn't answer because I didn't really ask for anything in the first place. The multiple reasons why it's no good, one that I see, if, you're, if you don't put your desires on the table, you still have them in your heart. And if they're in your heart, then you're going to move in that direction. If what I want is, if for me, if, I, if what I want is a thousand people in this room, I don't, but let's say that's what I want. I want a thousand people in this room. If I never say that because it feels egotistical or arrogant or selfish or whatever, I still want that, and I'm still going to drag y'all in that direction. I'm going to tell y'all we're going to get really small chairs, and you're going to, we're going to do those things. Bring a fan. That's what, I'm going to lead you in that direction, even though I've never said it because that's what's in my, I'm going to move towards what's in my heart. If I've decided that's what success or that's what kind of making it looks like, if you've got a number, 
If there's a number that you want, there's an income level, if there's a position, if it's a marriage or kids or if whatever it is that's in there, those desires, if you're not putting them out here, they're still in here and they're going to get corrupted. The best thing you can do is make them explicit. The best thing you can say is, God, I want my boss to get hit by a train. You still think that. And if you don't bring it out here, then he can't do anything with it. You can't get to the your will instead of mine until you've said, this is what I want. And so I've got to be willing to say, I want to have a huge church and be on the cover of a magazine. I want my billboard on 75 or whatever that is. I've got to be willing to say that. So then he can either say, great, that's what I want too, or absolutely not. But if I don't put it out there, then it stays in here and it turns to cancer in me. And the same thing is true for your desires, whatever they are, in whatever area of life. The reason we don't say them is because they feel selfish, and sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not, and sometimes they're selfish, and God will give them to you anyway. Sometimes you do that for your kids. You just give them what they want because they're your kids and you love them. And so there's some of that going on, and if we're not willing to put out here, this is what I want. This is what fulfillment, I think, looks like for me in these areas of my life. If we're not willing to say to him, then they stay hidden and he can't do any work. If it's a contingent thing, then we haven't asked him to get involved. And if it's a this is what I'm doing anyway thing, we haven't given him a chance to say no. Either way, those things get corrupted in my heart. So you, I want to say you have to. This is a model that I see in the garden. We've got to get to a point where we're confident and secure enough in our relationship with him that we'll say, this is what I want. Ultimately, I'm going to go with what you want. But I need to tell you what I want first. And then it's actually, it's a true submission to say, I'll do what you want. Once I've said, I want pizza. I want pizza. But if you want me to eat La Paris, I will. That's true submission at that point. Because I've, I've told him what I wanted. And so that's where you want to get as well. So two things as we close. One, do you have any revelation in your life? If I were to say, what is God up to in your life? Would you go, yeah. And if you don't know, don't feel bad. Just ask. Do you know what God's doing if you're married in your marriage? If you have children, do you know what God wants to do in your kids' lives? Do you know what he's up to there? Do you know what God wants to do in your career? Do you know what he wants to do in, your, in these different areas of your life? Would you say, yeah, I have some sense of where he's leading me, of what he's up to. And then the second thing I would say, when it comes to prayer, do you look like this in the garden? Do you tend to jump straight to whatever you want instead of sharing your desires? Or do you do the opposite and just share your desires and never say, God, I'm going to ultimately submit to you? Are there huge areas of your life that you don't even bring to the table with him? You don't give him access to those things for whatever reason. I want to encourage you as we close. If you don't have revelation, let's just ask. We can't make God speak to us, but we can ask him to and try to make ourselves available to hear. What are you doing in my life? Just pick one area. Don't pick the whole thing. Pick one area where you would say, I don't have a lot of direction. And then let's think about your prayer life. And does it look like this prayer life that we saw from Jesus, this posture that he has? If you don't have that, I'm going to say you're going to wind up kicking against the goads, and that's bad for everybody. You want to be in a place where you don't, you're not just resigned to, but you're, you're willing to embrace the circumstances that are, that are brought into your life because you recognize, listen, I know what God's doing and this is moving me in my, that direction, 
I've poured my heart out to him, and he knows I hate it or I love it or whatever. But ultimately, I'm going to go with what he has. To me, that's the only way that you can deal with these kinds of crises without falling apart. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this relationship that you've invited us into, that you've opened up this massive partnership with us where you say, listen, if y'all don't, if you don't ask me to do some things, I'm just not going to do them. And so God, as your sons and daughters, we don't want to leave anything on the table. So God, if there are places in our life where you're just, you're just waiting, God, would you stir us to pray? I pray particularly for those who've been disappointed at um, when they've unanswered prayers, prayers that have gotten a no from you that haven't been answered in the way that we want and that have caused us to step back and say, well, I'm just, I'm, you know, I kind of touched the, the stove once, I'm not going to touch it again kind of thing. Lord, I pray that you bring healing to our hearts, that we would trust you again in those areas as a good father. And Lord, I pray as well for any in this room who would say, I, I don't know who Jesus is to me right now. God, that you would begin to bring clarity to that question, clarity to that issue that you would be all that you are in our lives, God, that we would not shortchange you in any way. God, I pray for those of us who are confused, who are maybe a bit kind of, uh, kind of feel like we're just kind of going in circles, treading water, that you bring some clarity to us as well, what you're doing in our life, something we can grab onto that would help us know how to move forward. So in all of these things, God, we're expressing our need, our dependence upon you asking you to move and to speak in a way that we would get, praying that you would give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Let ministry teams up in the corner. That's how we'll close. If you want prayer for anything, we'll be happy to pray with you. But particularly, maybe if you're looking for